And so, we come to the conclusion of my five-day daily podcast summer extravaganza looking at Danny O'Neill's run on The Amazing Spider-Man. But before we crack on with issue 221, keen-eared listeners will have noticed that issue 220 is missing. That's because it was a fill-in by Michael Fleischer and Bob McLeod, but it was edited by Danny. It's a fill-in in every sense, because it's a Moon Knight story with Spider-Man in it, rather than a Spider-Man story. And as such, I wonder if this was supposed to be an inventory issue of Marvel Team-Up. What adds credence to my theory that this is an inventory that's been in the draw for a while is that it's only 17 pages. Comics have moved back to being 22 pages, and have been that way for a while now. The rest is filled with a badly drawn backup story about Aunt May, Positively riveting. The main story, A Coffin for Spider-Man, is actually pretty fun, with some pleasing art from Bob McCloud, and whilst it will never trouble a top ten list of underrated Spider-Man stories, it's not bad. Issue 221, though, has a cover by Wab Wyasek, aping Frank Miller, which seems to be all the rage at this time. Blues for Lonesome Pinky was written by Denny O'Neill, with art by Alan Cooperberg and Jim Mooney. This may be the silliest issue of O'Neill's run, even sillier than Peter Parker criminal. Dr. Kissick, a teacher of biochemistry, has been seen associating with undesirables, whatever that means, and has therefore been passed over for promotion. Apparently this is a far more serious offence than serving time, which Peter did two issues ago. Kissick's old pal, Ramrod, presumably the undesirable the Dean was referring to, wants a fast-acting poison with which he will drive all the patrons of Mickey's, a country and western bar, into a mad frenzy, and then death. And why, oh lovely listener, does Ramrod want to do this? Well, because, and get this, Ramrod is a country singer, and Mickey passed up the opportunity to have Ramrod perform in his bar. I shit you not, that's the bad guy's motivation. Ramrod is a frustrated country singer. (laughs) I, I can't top that. Nothing I can say about that issue can beat that plot point. It's either utter genius... Or the single worst motivation for a bad guy since Sandman killed Uncle Ben by accident. I mean, it, it, it gets better. Peter's terrible country caterwauling neighbour, Lonesome Pinky, has to save the patrons of Mickey's by singing. And suddenly, he's good. He pulls it off. His singing is so mesmerising it stops the audience from trying to kill each other long enough for Spider-Man to get Kissick to administer a cure to everybody. I mean, I get what O'Neill was going for here. Pathos for Lonesome Pinky. However, it's so over the top that it's just funny. 
It's the highest form of camp, something presented in so straight-laced a way that it's toppled over into parody. Ramrod's motivation is hysterical. Pinky's sudden talent as a singer, implausible, and Spider-Man's involvement, nonsensical. What can you do? After Denny left, the neighbours were largely ignored and forgotten about. For example, Pinky only appears twice more, and the neighbour Pete thought was Pinky, the tall dude with the cowboy hat, far as I'm aware, was never seen again. Issue 222 is another fill-in by writer Bill Mantlo with art by Bob Hall and Jim Mooney. It's primarily a comedy story, so as you may expect, it's played largely for laughs. Spider-Man tackles Speed Demon, actually the renamed Wizard, changed presumably because a villain who sounds like he's telling you he's going for a piss isn't very frightening. The fight scenes in particular play out like a Looney Tunes cartoon, but not in any bad way. It's a pretty fun issue, but it shows how directionless Amazing Spider-Man was at this time, that two out of three issues are fill-ins, and one out of four issues is plotted by a different scripter. That is the next issue, Denny's last of the regular series, issue 223. And, as I pointed out, Denny doesn't even complete the story, he just plots it. James DeMatteis is the scripter, and the art is by Jeremita Jr. and Al Milgram, so at least it feels like a normal issue, rather than another fill-in. The cover is great, despite featuring the red ghost and his stupid apes, copyright Stephen Lacey. The ghost and his monkey are spotted on a rooftop, caught in the glare of the spider signal. It's the colours that make this cover really stand out. In a story that really should have been called Going Ape, but is instead simply called Night of the Ape, Spidey is doing some late night swinging across ESU, his intent to mix a new batch of web fluid. It's late at night, so only Spidey and Roger Hotchberg, the first appearance for a supporting character who never really amounted to a much, are around. Hotchberg is up using the Annex Library. Peter has a soft spot for Roger, who is quiet and bookish, and reminds Peter of himself back in high school. Also in the library are Russian scientist bad guy The Red Ghost, who is after stealing a rare mathematical treatise that can help increase the cosmic ray-induced powers of himself and his three pet apes. For those that are unaware, and why would you not be aware of the Red Ghost and his stupid apes? The Red Ghost is a Russian scientist and cosmonaut who, back when Russia wasn't always poking their nose into other countries' elections, took a number of apes up into space with him, where he and they were exposed to cosmic rays that made him super smart and gave his pets superpowers. Hmm. I hate every monkey that I see, from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. Anyway, they weren't expecting anyone to be in the library this late, and in their zeal to prevent Roger from telling anyone they were here, the apes accidentally start a fire. Spider-Man hears the fire alarm and saves Roger. It's a remarkably good opening sequence. Fire is an event that can cause even the hardiest of us to panic, and Ramita Jr. and Milgram do a great job of milking out the tension. The Red Ghost needs his presence to remain a secret, and so vows to kill Roger. He apparently doesn't see Spider-Man. Speaking of Spider-Man, Peter is investigating the Red Ghost at the Bugle, which leads to a good exchange between Peter and Jonah. Parker, I don't pay good money to have you loitering around here reading. You've started paying good money? <laughs> I'll, I'll give Dematis that, that was a good gag. Peter decides to invite Roger to a kegger. I know, I know. Peter Parker at a kegger? 
Well, it goes badly when Roger is the butt of a frat boy gag. Peter lays into everyone, though, about this. Everyone knows Roger isn't really a people person, so you all felt it would be a million laughs to humiliate the guy? Peter's right, and it's nice to see that one of the girls says as such, telling her friends that what they just did to Roger stank. Peter rushes away from the party to try and find poor Roger, but spots the Red Ghost, who is also after Roger, and everyone ends up back in the library. Despite the seemingly extensive damage last night, everything is fine, though. Now, how are you? Damage control must work really quickly. What follows is another really well-paced, fun fight sequence that ultimately ends in a draw when Roger manages to sneak away and call the police. Interestingly, the girls from last night's party seem impressed by this, saying Roger saved Spider-Man's life. The main girl even tells Roger she wants to know him very well. Roger's getting in some Rogering. I'm so sorry. This was fine. It accomplishes nothing in the overall scheme of things, but the Roger Hotchberg subplot is nice and shows how much Peter has changed over the years, in that not only does he go to keggers, but he'll stand up for the underdog that he used to be. It's a nice change from Peter the Bastard that we've seen a little too much of over the past year or so of the book. Finally, though, Denny arguably saved the best for last. The cover for Amazing Spider-Man Annual 15 was by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen, and is a point-of-view shot of Dr. Octopus's arms reading a newspaper, holding coffee in one of his extra appendages, whilst using the two others to peruse the front page of today's Daily Bugle. The cover shows a photo, presumably by Peter Parker, of Spider-Man, avoiding being filled full of lead by The Punisher. The headline reads, Spider-Man vs. The Punisher, which isn't particularly creative. I think the Bugle should hire a new headline writer. Rather unusually, this comic actually provides a date for the events depicted herein. The Daily Bugle is cover dated Saturday the 12th of September 1981. As J. Jonah Jameson read his yet another Spider-Man menace article for the Daily Bugle's front page, Robbie Robertson, editor, urges caution. The last time the Bugle ran an anti-Spider-Man article, circulation fell to below 5 million. Remember that number. Robbie urges Jonah to wait for Peter Parker and Ben Urich to return with their story, a phony faith healer named Terhan. Jonah harumphs. Nothing will come of that. Oh, Jonah, don't you know how these things work? At the precise moment Jonah says, nothing will become of that, the Punisher pulls a trigger and Terhan gains an extra hole in his chest. Sadly, he was in the middle of demonstrating his death touch, his fake claim to fame, in which he injects into his victim a poison via a ring on his finger. Normally, he magically brings the people back to life, but thanks to the Punisher, the Eastern mystic is now feeding the tree, meaning the girl he touched will soon be dead for real. As with the last annual Denny wrote, The Curse of the Ben Sinister, there's a vein of humour running through this story that O'Neill didn't tap when writing characters such as Batman. Jonah's frustration at the Spider-Man menace story being dropped is funny, but also a nice character bit. It shows Jonah will listen to Robbie when he has to. As you may expect from Frank Miller, the panel layouts are excellent, especially once Spider-Man appears, once again showing off Miller's Ditko influence. I particularly like Spider-Man flashing the spider signal and the Punisher calmly ignoring it and taking aim, blowing Spidey's web shooters off, which again taps into the subtle humour of the story. 
That said, the angle the Eastern Faith Healer is shot at is inconsistent with where the Punisher is stood, but this is a very deadly and uncompromising Punisher. This is, however, a 1980s Comics Code-approved Punisher, and therefore he's still using mercy bullets, which I think are an utter crock of shit. They sell this image that guns and bullets don't actually do serious harm, be they wielded by the simplistic notion of a good or a bad guy doesn't really matter. Bullets don't give a shit if you're good or bad, they fucking hurt. Mercy bullets, therefore, are a bullshit notion that I think do more damage to people's understanding, specifically the kids who would be reading this who may think mercy bullets are a real thing. Bullets don't show mercy, and neither does the Punisher. He's not and never has been a hero or a good guy. Just because he only kills bad guys doesn't make him not a sociopathic murderer. Speaking of sociopaths, this is how I always like Dr. Octopus being portrayed. No nonsense and quite merciless. Granted, we're better not lingering for too long on the question of how he can beat the Punisher so easily, a man who just dispatched Spider-Man with ease, yet Doc Ock can never manage to beat Spider-Man. Both men want the Turhan's ring, which is currently in the morgue around the Turhan's finger. However, its deadly poison is still most effective, as a greedy coroner learns to its cost. The Punisher arrives at the morgue, preparing to cut the finger off Turhan if necessary, but Dr. Octopus easily overpowers the Punisher. Ock doesn't tarry. He steals Turhan's body and makes tracks. Ben Urich is now teamed up with Jimmy Olsen to investigate, which isn't the first time one of Clark Kent's supporting cast has made a background appearance in a Spider-Man comic. Peter is presumably not going to like the competition, although Lance Bannon doesn't seem to be around for this issue. As Spider-Man has to make do with Peter Parker's journalist contacts, he learns what the Punisher already knows, that the poison that let the Turhan do the death touch gag is to be dumped in the sea at Pier 43. Doc Ock beats both of them to the location, but the Punisher follows the drug to its destination, the undersea lure of Dr. Octopus. But once again, Ock gains the upper hand and spooges a vial of poison all over the Punisher's face. He then calls the New York Mur to tell him he plans to murder five million people just to establish his credentials. Five million. I told you to remember that number. After the people are dead, then Ock will have demands. I mentioned previously that Denny didn't lean into continuity porn too much, but it's a lovely little continuity touch that Dr. Octopus is using his old master planner hideout underwater. Also, further evidence of O'Neill's plotting skills, he seeds in the death toll at the beginning of the story, the bugle circulation number. Spider-Man arrives last, smashes through a wall, not terribly smart in an underwater hideout, and prepares to tackle Ock, who casually informs him of the Punisher's predicament. As Spidey struggles to cure the Punisher, amidst the cascading water, Ock flees. Spider-Man not only cures the Punisher, he then cures the ill girl as well, before turning in the story of Ock's threat to kill five million people. Sure was convenient that Ock left around all his notes, thus enabling Spider-Man to find said cure really quickly. I think we could do with him at the moment. Jonah is up against the deadline and decides to run with Peter's story. He quickly replates the front page and heads to the presses to watch today's edition being published. However, Doc Ock is already there, adding a special ingredient to the ink. Fortunately, Spider-Man has figured out how Ock is to kill five million people, and like a streak of light, he arrives just in time. 
He manages to avoid Ock, but Jonah is in the way. So in between saving Jonah's sorry behind, Spider-Man also has to stop Ock, which he does by sneakily trapping his arms in between the presses. The final fight scene is excellent and very funny. Miller manages to make the Ditko homages even more overt by giving us a full-page splash akin to those seen in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1. In fact, the page of Spidey punching Ox lights out is wonderfully nostalgic. The Punisher recovers but is arrested by a young cop. The Punisher easily gets a drop on the young cop but refuses to kill him. He has a very nice line when he says, The good thing about prison, there's a lot of criminals there. Jonah feels he finally has a great story to run until Robbie points out that if people think the bugle is poisoned, they won't buy it. Enraged, Jonah is forced to run the Spider-Man menace story. This is a wonderfully engaging and massively enjoyable romp. As with all such stories, Denny plays really fur with the reader. The five million circulation clue is dropped right there on page one for the reader to pick up later. And all the complaints about his pacing in other issues are forgotten as this fur rattles along. O'Neill's story is funny and even manages to get a dig in at Batman with Doc Ock stating that poisoning the water supply would be crass. The guest stars are handled well. Like Doctor Strange in Annual 14, The Punisher is a decent addition to the story, and it's a nice throwback to when Spider-Man really didn't like The Punisher. I would have liked to see this team handle more Punisher stories. The art is Miller and Jansen in the Daredevil era, and as such features that scratchy feel Jansen brought to Miller's Daredevil work, but it's in the upper ranges of their collaborations rather than some of the lazier-looking stuff later on. There is the usual great attention to light and shadow that Miller was known for, and all told, this is an undiscovered and little referred to gem of a comic. And that concludes my daily look at Denny O'Neill's run on The Amazing Spider-Man. It isn't groundbreaking, or even particularly memorable, other than for introducing Madame Webb and, to a lesser extent, Hydro-Man. However, to dismiss it as the worst Spider-Man run ever is to ignore its many fine points. In terms of the actual writing, this is far from the worst Spider-Man ever got. The actual structure of Denny's stories is textbook, with the setup, rising action and conclusions all being well handled. His single issues are probably his best, Marathon, The Prophecy of Madame Webb, and even the much maligned Fusion being pretty well executed in terms of the craft of writing. The use of New York is also impressive. Every now and again, the stories seem to come to an abrupt conclusion, which is a pacing and structural issue, but it's only really evident in one or two cases. Secondly, the use of villains is often mocked, but I think I'd rather see Spidey tackle new villains, even misunderstood ones like Fusion and Hydro Man, than have an issue like the Craven one, which is paint by numbers. Do we really need to have the 1000th clash with the Vulture that brings nothing new to the table? Or would you rather Spidey fight Ramrod? Well, okay, maybe not Ramrod, but even the annual with Dr. Octopus was nothing more than a dusting off of the old pollute the water supply gag. I think Denny deserves credit for mostly staying away from the old guard. Characterization could be a little off. Peter was overly mean to Deb Whitman, often without realising it, sure, but still... Mary Jane and Gwen were strong, independent women who could handle Peter being a bit flaky. Deb clearly has issues, but this is never addressed. And instead, Peter uses her as a doormat, a simple prop to occupy his time whenever he's at a loose end. He's desperately trying to get with his hot neighbour despite dating Deb, albeit 
not exclusively. And he even gets indignant that she has the temerity to get bored of his antics and get a new boyfriend. He also frequently tries to shuck his responsibility, with only the marathon story having a moment of heroic realisation. That said, this is a curious time for the character. He's in a limbo period, unsure where to go or what to do next. It would have to wait nearly 20 years for Peter to get a direction that stuck for a while, that of high school teacher. But as a kid, I thought he should have ended up at the Brand Corporation, Stark International, or even working for Reed Richards at this point, even if only as an intern. Peter always wanted to be a scientist, not a teacher. And whilst he can do both, maybe having him be at Brand or Roxon before realising they are the bad guys could have been fun. Danny's run also demonstrated one of the key differences, with few exceptions, between Marvel and DC comics throughout the 60s, 70s and early 80s. DC was plot-driven. Marvel was character-driven. Marvel had any number of cookie-cutter plots, some of which Stanley recycled across multiple titles, but it relied on the characters and their ongoing dramas to engage and keep reader interest. DC, especially with the science fiction heroes like The Flash, The Green Lantern and Superman, told big science fiction stories. It was only when Marvel writers like Steve Englehart, Jerry Conway and Marv Wolfman moved over to DC that the characters became more important. Unlike Englehart, Conway and Wolfman, who took the Marvel approach to DC, Denny went the other way, taking the DC approach to Marvel. In these issues of Spider-Man, that's to varying degrees of success. Denny has never given interviews about his Spider-Man run, not even in Tom DeFalco's book, Comic Creators on Spider-Man, where he is the only notable omission. So his thoughts on his time writing the character are now lost forever. Overall, though, the O'Neill run is, for some reason, not widely regarded, and I don't know if I agree with the reasons why. Sure, it's never been reprinted anywhere prior to this masterwork, therefore it's never really been up for reappraisal. But it's not as melodramatic as the Wolfman run, which is highly lauded. And even the Len Wein run, arguably just as forgettable, is better remembered. I wonder, is this to do with the continuity and fan palm the latter two put into their stories? Denny didn't bother with that, he just told stories. Continuity and falling back on old tropes, villains and recurring motifs can actually be a hindrance. But there is a section of the fan base that wants that and doesn't really want anything new. Everybody wants a tale that's already been told. Denny tried to break the mould. Dennis Joseph O'Neill, May 3rd, 1939 to June 11th, 2020. Rest in peace. Okay, time for our first email tonight. Our only email tonight. I've said I'd only do one on these just to keep it short. And it's from Jack Bone. Hello, Jack. Hello, Andy. Daily Denny for a week of webs. Which is a good title. Uh, Andy, have you ever considered an overlooked web slinger podcast? Well, Michael Burley and I did consider at one point doing a blue and red podcast. That would be the title of it, the blue and the red. And he would bring a, a Superman story and I would bring a Spider-Man story. But as with all of our ideas, it, it never happened. Although I do remember that we talked about the first episode having a story where Spider-Man was black and white and Superman was his electric blue uniform just to mess with people's heads, because why not? Uh, Jack continues, like Slarty Bartfast, I'm a great fan of science and I want to drop you some assurances on Amazing Spider-Man issue 208. Chemically, elements are the basic immutable substances. Each has its own type of atom and there is no chemical way to split the atom. 
For this, you need the subatomic particle accelerator. Not to go into too much detail, but when the accelerated subatomic particles hit an atomic nucleus, they may build it up into a heavier element or divide it into a lighter element. Hopefully, not ones we already know about. I think by 1980 we had all possible elements lighter than heaviest found in nature, although lab-made heavy ones may have skipped some slots. Long story short, too late, O'Neill and his passel of helpers did not lead you astray. Well, the danger of it accidentally combining brothers into a glowing energy-absorbing being, that's artistic license that we allow for in comic book science. Jack. Well, thank you, Jack. That was very useful to know. I didn't receive an email, but I did receive a Facebook post from Dan Doherty, who pointed out that Jim Shooter said in a blog that sometimes Denny didn't write his own scripts. He said he could not find that blog, so take it with a pinch of salt. I did a little bit of my own research, and I only found a blog where Shooter mentions that Denny's assistant editors complained that they had that Denny had them do all of the editing work while he was busy writing his freelance scripts. So, I, I don't know which is the truth. The truth could be somewhere in the middle, as it always is. And that concludes my daily look at Danny O'Neill's run on The Amazing Spider-Man, inspired by Damien Lee. Thank you, Damien. I will be taking a break now for summer, but you've got five episodes here, totally nearly three hours, so you can either listen to them installments or you can binge them all in one go, as is your want. Just do not listen to them on 1.5 speed. <sighs> That's like watching a 4x3 television, 16x9, or a pan and scan version of a film. <sighs> anyway, I will be back uh, after the summer holidays. I'm just going to take a bit of a break, enjoy myself as much as I can, and uh, I will return with all new episodes of The Palace of Glittering Delights real soon. Take care, stay safe, and everything is going to be okay. Goodbye. <laughs>